Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Just a quick warning. This podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Today, we have a special guest on the Stick Up podcast, former bikey associate, Scott Kieran. Scott, welcome to the Stick Up. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having us. Mate, where'd you grow up? Penrith, the reef. God's country out there. Yeah, St. Dom. Did you go to St. Dom's? Fuck no. No. (laughs) I went to the P&I school. Okay. (laughs) Public system all the way. Yeah. Mate, what was the family life like growing up? Not too bad. Like my parents separated, but no violence in the household or anything like that. Mm. We we didn't have a lot of money, mm. like, but like, like most people that grow up out west, there's not too many people that have got a fair bit of cash in the back pocket. Yeah. But we didn't really go on too many family holidays. Like there wasn't lots of spare money, but we got by. We had a good childhood. And what like, what were you? How many kids in the family? Four. So I'm the eldest of four. The area that we grew up in, like it was. A little bit rough. Who did people you idolised back then? Growing up, I looked at guys that were making money in the yeah. area. As yeah. I got into my teen years, I looked at guys that were the bikies and the guys that were selling drugs because, like I just said, we don't we all you know grew up without much money in the back pocket, and so to see guys doing well, that was like the image of success yeah. in the area. The and nice cars, the nice yeah, clothes, the women. That's right, and then you sort of think, well, I want that. Like especially. You get a bit angry at the world that my, for my position in it. Yeah. I come to no one from out west and I can be a somebody and that was the direction. So that's become the goal. Like yeah. And when you've got influences around you like that, like it's easy to take the path. Yeah, I relate to it, mate. When I was a kid, I used to see the bank robbers and the drug dealers and that. Mm. Bang. I don't want to be the working man up the bus stop mm. freezing his balls off. Yeah, that's right. And you, like you, you touched on it yourself, like the women and the money, like you think, well, I want women to show me some attention, yeah. but I want that too. You want the money in your pocket, but you don't want to be working hard for it, and mm. it comes easy. And it's, when there's an arm around your shoulder saying, come with us, we can help you out and show you the way, then it's it's very appealing. And that happens a lot, doesn't it, out mm. there? They see a young bloke, like if you show a bit of dash, you've got no mm. backward step, mm. it's pretty easy to get into them circles. It's very easy to get into, and mm. that's probably one of the problems. Like, easy to get into, easy money, mm. and the... You can understand the law of it to somebody in that position, and that's the path we both took. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but in hindsight tells you later about different things later on, doesn't it? Yeah, for for me now, in the position that I'm in now, looking back, you yeah. think, fuck, it's a hard path. Yeah, for sure. You've done 23 years or so, jail yeah. yourself. I've done seven and a half, and that was enough for me, and thank yeah. God I didn't have to do another 15 yeah. or so till I figured it out. Uh, when did you first start getting in trouble? What was it, what was it all about? 
I didn't really get in any real trouble until I turned about 18. For me, yeah. it was more when I started going out to the pubs, drinking. Like, alcohol was always a big factor for me. Yeah. Get a few drinks under the belt and I'd go wild. Always always loved the party. I wanted to be where the action was. But once I had the few drinks under my belt too, I was violent. I was, you know, juiced up. It's conducive for bad behaviour. And that's pretty much when the trouble started for me. Lots of pub fighting. Like, there was never really any... I wasn't breaking into houses. I wasn't doing yeah. that type of stuff. It was more the behavioural side of things that come with the party lifestyle, drugs and alcohol. And so when did the sort of thing come, when did it start to happen? When did the club start to pick up on you and start seeing your potential? Probably not till I was in my sort of close to mid-20s. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that they find attractive for, for the guys that they want to bring in is violence because they see you as an asset. Yeah. It's either you can prop up that image of strength that they want to portray and if you can make a bit of money, if you... I was doing a few things, making a few dollars, and I was big and juiced up and violent, so that was their attraction to me. And then, obviously, the things we just spoke about, me wanting to make a bit of money, and you get that sort of the brotherhood thing a little bit too, which, to be fair and honest, is a bit of a lie, really. Like, it's that's my view of it. Other people might not take the same view, but that's what I found. It's like a sales pitch. Yeah. This is what we're going to offer you. This is what you're coming into. This is what you're going to get out of it, and... Well, that wasn't my experience anyway. Yeah. But uh, I will say that I did enjoy a lot of the time that I spent yeah. hanging around those boys because it was fun. Yeah. We did party, plenty of women. The, the parts that attracted you're attracted to are there, but there's a flip side of repercussions for that too. There's obviously lots of shit that you don't see that yeah. sort of once you get involved a bit more and behind the curtain of... There's some stuff there that I didn't really like. and You know, the reason why I never joined a club, like, I, all, all respect to the clubs, I just, I love my freedom. Mm. And you don't have a lot of freedom when you're in a club. Yeah. Yeah, but you've you got to toe a certain line. Yeah, certain you get call-outs. Certain expectations on you and, you know, this is what you need to do and off you go. Mm. But my view of it, and I always give an honest opinion mm. over how it lands, is that you're sort of, yeah, I didn't like that. Like, I always stood on my own two feet. I made my own money before coming in. I always considered myself to be my own man and I felt like I lost a bit of that. Yeah. And it it didn't really suit me. For some people, that type of life suits them to a T and good on it. But it just wasn't for me. My best mate got recruited from prison and Mm. he was doing, he done 15 for murder and he got recruited from prison and he made it all the way to prison chapter and Mm. uh, the chapter. And he said, I woke up one day and realised I was the only decent bloke in my chapter. Mm. He said, I woke up one day and realised I I was the one that had any going. He said, no one was doing anything except for me. Yeah, there is a lot expected of you, but um, not everybody wants to go the extra mile type yeah. of thing. And did you like? Do you think the buck got past the blokes that did have the dash to do it? Yeah, you yeah. see, if nobody would be considered a ball runner, and, mm. and it's oh, well, he'll do it. Yeah, and then it's the same people putting in the work while other people sit back. But look, I, again, I only speak from my own experience. But there, like plenty of guys in clubs yeah. that come and go, and they also mm. have their say their piece, and it, yeah. it's a pretty common view, I would say, for yeah, guys yeah, that for sure. once they get to the end of it. But Look, the, I did get in my own trouble without that aside. Yeah. Without the club stuff. But. And what was that trouble? What was it? Mostly fighting. Yeah. yeah. Drinking and fighting. But do you know what? And to be fair, I had a lawyer point this out to me. There was a certain period of time, I think it was between like maybe 2009 or 10 and 12, and he said, there's a period here where you didn't get in any trouble. 
what happened. And I said, I was probably, probably that's the time that I was spending most time hung around the club. Yeah. But because we used to go back to, we'll go out drink and have a few drinks and we'll round a few people up, a couple of girls back, mm. like, round a few girls up and we'll go back to the clubhouse. Yeah. So if you carry on like a fuckwit at the clubhouse or you're getting a punch up or something, there's no real consequences because yeah. you're just contained. Whereas if you're doing that out in public all the time, that's when the trouble comes. So I generally finished up my time hanging around about 2012 and then I was out more and yeah. in trouble. But the... The thing, the offence that I went to jail for the first time is was the take detain matter. Mm. That was with a group of guys that I was in the club with, and I had left by then. But I still spent time with them. There was no animosity. I left on good terms. Yeah. I just said, "Look, this isn't for me. This shit I don't like about it, and I'm just going to you know, distance myself. I'm going to take off." And I said, "Do your thing. It's all mm. good." Let's and talk about the take detain. Was that something that happened at the clubhouse? Is that the thing at Mitchell? The accusation was that we went to somebody's house and detained them in their house and that was out out Penrith Way. Yeah, what's the name of the suburb? Castle Ray. Castle Ray. Yeah, yeah. I should yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Castle Ray. So that was the accusation. Yeah, it was like that it was bike club related. Mm. So we we were arrested for that in 2014 and spent three years fighting it through the courts. That was a, a really long epic trial that. Four months, yeah. Four months every day on the truck in the morning. From prison. What do they call it? Diesel torture. Like they have, what happens to these guys, they go on to trial, so every morning they get them up at four o'clock, even though they don't have to be in court until 10 o'clock, nine mm. or 10 o'clock. They get them up, take them down to the reception room and make them hang around there in a fucking stinking fucking reception cell. Mm. Truck turns up about 8.30, 9 o'clock, back to another cell at Downing Centre. Mm. And then if you're lucky, you get in to see, oh man, that, that process is a process of torture. I think that process is the tor- torture is designed that way. Yeah, a lot of guys get through even two or three weeks of trial and just go, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. They're, they're fucked. They're yeah. mentally exhausted because take away that travel situation from jail, like it's a stressful process. Yeah. Like, you might have ten years on the line, whether it goes good or I've bad. I've seen people plead guilty to things they didn't do, hundred percent, because of that ran- there's a thing called random bed placement in New South Wales. They can put you at a different jail every week of the fucking year until your court case is up. Mm. Yeah, I've seen that happen too. Yeah. There was guys that I was going to court with, they were running their own trials, and just one day you just don't see him no more. Yeah. And what happened to him? Oh, he yeah. pleaded guilty. He pleaded guilty. And he, just because he couldn't cop it no more. Yeah. So if you've got a process that's designed to break you down, um, that's not fair. I had a meeting with all the commissioners of New South Wales Corrective Service, and the first thing I said, you've got to get rid of random blood placement. Just, you can't justify it. They've got jail. They've got enough jails for everyone. You, I was speaking to an Aboriginal bloke when I was up at Bathurst. I've done a lot of my jail up at Bathurst. Mm. Horrible fucking kind of place. Freezing cold, boiling hot. Yeah, horrible job. But anyway, he one of his one of the things I was talking to him about was saying that there is policy in place to say with corrective services that Aboriginal inmates should be housed closer to where they're from because in general, it's harder for them to get around. They might not have as much money or much access to transport options for guys, you know, go five, six, seven hours away. Mm. So for those inmates, they're supposed to be housed yeah, close, close but to it, home. But it doesn't happen. But if, you're, if you're from Wagga, they'll send you to Grafton. 100%. And that's another, they, they want you to be far away from your family. Yeah. They want your time. You can understand the general Joe Blow member of the public to say, who gives a fuck? Mm. So that's fair enough. That's a fair opinion. You're entitled to it. It's a free country. They want time, prisoners' time in jail to be tough. Yeah. There isn't, there's a, there is, 
utility in punishment for your crime. Mm. But what people don't understand is if you make the time tougher, make, treat people like animals, just generally try and beat them down, then you're not going to have any sort of rehabilitation in the system, and there is none. Mm. So simple things like trying to break your will to go into court when you, to not get a fair trial. You have innocent people pleading guilty to things that they haven't done just because you've fucking broken them. Then you're going to house them away from their families, somewhere they're seven, eight hours away, they can't see their kids. Then you've got people in jail for drug matters, they've got drug addictions, what was behind the offending. There's no real effort to address that. What's causal? Talk about it. You talk, and what you're pointing at is trauma. What's happening is they're trying to break someone that's already traumatized. The drug. You show me a drug. You show me a person with propensity for violence, a drug addict, and someone who self harms. And I'll show you a person who's been traumatized. Hmm. It's an underlying issue. And when you get moved around like that, you don't get a chance to fucking. And there's another thing. The court goes. When you go before the court, when you do get sentenced, you've done nothing to address your offending behaviour because nothing was available to you. Even if you do get into a court, sometimes they can move you before you get the chance to finish it, but there's not much available. Mm. There's, there is drug and alcohol addressing courses in jail. Yeah. There's violence addressing courses in jail, but they're only at certain prisons mm. and they're a limited number of spots. Yeah, and normally the stiffs get them. And not only that, a lot of the time you're not eligible for them anyway. You yeah. say, what do you mean? I'm in for fucking beating the fuck out of somebody. I'm in for holding somewhere up. I'm in for drug offences. Oh, you're not eligible for them. Yeah, risk of reoffending scores too low. Yeah, that's right. But I, I, never, I couldn't do drug out. I've spent 23 years in jail. My risk of reoffending score was too low to do any course. Mm. They said, no, you didn't. They, they change those parameters all the time. So my most recent time that I was in prison, I got out one year ago. I was in charge initially with two attempted murders. Mm. And I said, can I do aggression course, address mm. violent behaviour? They go, no, you can't do it. And I said, you know what I'm charged with? They said, yeah, it doesn't matter. You can't do it. You're not sentenced yet. Yeah. And I said, wouldn't it be beneficial for me to do that course? Like, you're char- I'm charged with stabbing two people, or mm. two attempted murders. It's fucking serious. Should I not be addressing that? Mm. No. no. We don't win, so. So I got to do a course right at the end of my sentence, a couple of months before I got out, that was 10 weeks of absolute bullshit. Yeah. You know, so you can like, so my course that I had to do was I had to do uh, drug and alcohol courses as well because that mm. was linked to my offending. Mm. But it's all a load of shit. It doesn't actually. Like, no. have, have, I'm sure you didn't do the courses yourself, but I'm sure you knew plenty of guys that done all those courses who no. come out of them saying, you know what, that was a great course. It really got to the core of uh, my issues and I feel better for having done it. Mm. Everyone comes out going, that was a fucking load of shit. There's only one course that I've heard people rant and rave. It's called VOTP, Violence Fucking. Offenders yeah, yeah. Program. Yeah. That one there, that was very, I think, 20 by, or maybe 40 blokes a year out of, out of 20,000 get put through it. It's not many, but do you know why? Because there's psychologists run it. Yeah, yeah. They have one-on-one time with psychologists. I don't know. Look, I haven't done the course, so mm. I couldn't tell you. I was supposed to do the course, but then for whatever reason, I wasn't eligible and I got down to do the the lesser courses, yeah. the equips courses. I do know blokes that have done the courses, but I spoke to them about what they'd done and they had one-on-time with qualified psychologists. Mm. That's why that course is effective. Yeah. To say, for instance, that somebody comes into jail that's not eligible for that course, but they could benefit from speaking to a psychologist or somebody that's qualified to actually, that knows what the fuck they're talking about to deal with that, their offending issues. How many people wouldn't come back because mm. they've dealt with things effectively? Mm. But that would take money and investment and stuff that's not popular. With me, I, not through prison, I got four years of trauma through the Royal Commission Institution sponsors child sexual abuse. I got four years of trauma. Over the phone, trauma counselling, it changed my life. Today I haven't been in prison. I don't even look like reoffending. I've been out of jail six and a half years, the longest I've ever been out. And it's just amazing what happens 
It was taken out of Quickview Services' hands and what happens when you get someone else from the outside says this is what he needs. Mm. But what's crazy is tw- in 23 years of prison, no one have ever identified that. No one was smart enough to identify that's what I needed. Look, I think there's plenty of people that knows what needs to be done, but it's... Just doing it. Look, one of the things I talk about in my book is recidivism, and I've got strong opinions on recidivism and what I th- what is going on and what should happen. Yeah. And I think that one of the reasons why the recidivism is- issue is never effectively dealt with is because there's too many people that profit from things remaining the way that they are. Oh, I agree with you totally. It's if you language. were going to effectively address that issue and stop the revolving door prison system, that's repeat customers. Yeah. Prisons are a business. Why would they stop their biggest money-making commodity, mm. which is cheap labour. Yeah. When I was working in the prisons, I was doing shit like fucking cleaning Qantas headphones and mm. all the other menial shit little jobs that you get in there. I was getting paid 20 bucks a week, Yeah. $25 a week. It's That's, a new form of slave labour, isn't it? The, I say the, Amer- the American economy becomes so strong and grew off the slave back from cheap labour or yeah. no labour costs. And that's yeah. essentially the, their fucking business model with the Australian prison system and the American prison yeah. systems. They all rely on cheap labour. Um, but it's not just the prisons that profit and the companies. Uh, CSI. And the Cricket uh, Services Industry. You know industry. How much, that, that company turns over hundreds of millions of dollars every fucking year. Mm. And it's all through cheap labour. Mm. So why would, when ter- so many people are profiting and having their pockets lined through that cheap labour, effectively implement programs and policy and a system that stops that from happening? The real reason nothing changes is because too many people make money off it. It's scary, isn't it? It's mm. scary that they could bring in such effective... You're talking my language here. I love this sort of... Comment. I'm passionate about it. I'm... You show them an alternative. I showed them an alternative with some trauma stuff because my thing, I'm designing a course called Rewind. Show me a person with an underlying issue, a propensity for violence. Let's go and dig it up. Let's go and find out why he's violent. Let's just rewind the fucking tapes. Go to the video ref, rewind them, and then identify what the problem is and do the work. One-on-one psychologists, group chats, whatever. Finding coping strategies for them not to use violence. Show me a person who a serious drug... Like, the whole drug and alcohol thing, I'm real big on this. Let's find the core root of the drug and alcohol use. 100%. Let's not just say, oh, he uses drugs. We've got to show him not how to do it. We've got to find out why he uses them. That's right. That's Doctor. Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey wrote a book, and the first question I asked is, what happened to you? Hmm. No one asks what happened to you. They're all quick to say, oh, you're a fucking piece of shit, you're a scumbag, you're this and that. No one ever goes, what happened to you and what can we do? It's a simple fucking question. It is, but it's getting it's a uh, question that cuts to the core mm. of the issues that are causal to offending. A lot of the time that is drug use and then they, you know, how many drug addicts hold down a, a job that's capable of supporting their drug habit. So you mm. turn, they turn to crime mm. and then they land them in jail and they continue using drugs in jail, get out. They've not effectively dealt with those issues, so they get back to using drugs and committing mm. crime again. It's a vicious circle that goes round and round. But you can design a course around trying to say why you shouldn't use drugs, say, for instance. But if I made the point to you, if you're a smoker, I could pile the evidence to the fucking ceiling about why you should quit smoking, the financial benefits of quitting smoking, the health benefits. You've got all those pictures mm. on packets of people dying and mm. got fucking shit all over their face, cancers on their face mm. and shit. It's not going to make them stop. No. So, somebody will make change. It doesn't matter what the change is. People will make change when they fucking want to mm. and they decide for themselves. So if you can get talk, sit down and talk to somebody about why 
why are you using drugs? What's the problem? What happened? What's going on? And they can come to that decision for themselves, then they'll fucking change. And if they yeah. feel supported, they feel like they've got people on their team because a lot of those people probably feel like that nobody gives a fuck about them. But there is a lot of blokes in there in particular, like I've been in the jail, they want mm. to make a change, but there's just nothing there. Nothing there. There is no. I went through this myself. Mm. When I was when I came in this most recent time, that was when I made the decision, I'm changing my life, I'm not doing this. Mm. I'd just beaten the take the take take detain case. Yeah. When I was on bail for that case, because the witness didn't show up to court at the committal hearings, I got bail. Mm-hmm. While I was out, I was charged with a manslaughter and arson case. So I'm stacking serious charges up, one on top mm-hmm. of the other. I was looking at, just on that alone. 20? Maybe not 20. Mm-hmm. I was thinking 15, mm-hmm. but who knows? Like mm-hmm. I had manslaughter, arson, and then a separate case for a take detain I was looking mm-hmm. 10 for. So I was thinking probably around the 15 mark. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I go through, long story short, I get, uh, I finish all that off, 2018, I got out. I was only out for eight weeks. Xanax, alcohol, I went and committed the offence that I came back in for, which was the stabbing case, the two mm. attempted murders. And I just hit this low point where I just thought, I'm not doing this now. I jail my I've just fucked everything up. I've got a second chance. I let everybody down. So I just made a decision. I'm going to change my fucking life. If, I've got, if I'm going to be in here for 10 years, so be it, but I'm going to get out a better man and I'm never coming back. So, but I didn't... It's a good position. I, I, I get it. It's mm. a good position to be in, isn't it? I think that some of the some of the hardest shit you ever go through your life in your life, that adversity, it has the potential to what you can gain from it. It has the potential to change your life for the better. But it's just how you deal with it, it's how you view it, and it's up to you. It's a choice that you make. But I thought I had no idea how to change it. I thought I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. What, I don't even. I had no lots of questions. I had no answers for them. So I started to reach out and said I wanted to do these offence addressing courses. I want to speak to a psychologist. There's things that I try to do. I thought I want to get out. I want to upskill. If I'm going to be in here for 10 years, I want to do some tertiary education, get out with a degree I can use, something. Mm. And I just kept on getting no. Every time I asked to do something, I got turned away. You can't do your tertiary education. You can't speak to a psychologist. They're busy. We'll put you on a list. There's people that are higher priority than you. But there's no <coughs> room in these courses for them. You're not eligible. I just kept on getting no. Mm. And... Like you said, there's people that reach that point that they want help and they go, I'm ready to change my life and there's no one there. And it's a good catchment time for them. When they want it, that's when you've got to get them. What better time? Mm. Like the my view of the with the prison system, the corrective service, supposed to be corrective mm. services to correct the yeah, offending behaviour. It's a joke. It's a punitive service, that's what mm. it is. But when they should recognise that when somebody's come to them and going, like, you're at a low point in your life and you're ready to fucking change. Like, that's mm. a perfect time to get someone to go, here's a few options for you. Or you can go speak to a psychologist, talk to them about what's going on, and here's a couple of courses that you might be interested in. There's plenty of guys that go, I'm not doing that fucking shit, but that's their choice. But you know when the you crazy get somebody- bit? The funding's there for it all. The funding is there. It always has been there, you know what I mean? I know a commissioner of creative services, he told me the funding's there, they just don't like using it. Why? Yeah. Because it, it goes back to what you said initially. Yeah, because they, they would, if there was, if they reduced the prison population by 10 or 15% through reducing recidivism, there'd be 10, 15% less jobs available. Yeah. You just brought something up and I want to talk about the dangers of Xanax. Yeah, it's fucking dangerous. And I say Xanax are the most dangerous drug. There's a joke and it says a 10-year jail sentence in every bottle. Tell me the effects that Xanax have because I really want kids because they're rampant out in the streets and I want kids and young Mm. people to understand the dangers of Xanax. It's a prescription drug, obviously, to treat. It's an anti-anxiety medication. Mm. It's very strong, very potent. But side effects, like it makes you very tired, but if you fight that tiredness and don't go to bed, then you basically 
It's hard to describe. I would say it's something similar to being very drunk, but it's different. Mm. The, that medication is designed to shut off your thought process because that's what anxiety is. Mm. Anxiety is your mind's running rampant about worrying about something in the future or something in the past. Mm. So that's what the medication is designed to do, and it is a very effective mm. drug. But it also that, that shuts down like your higher brain functions, your thought mm. process, mm. and your decision making skills. Mm. Risk, analysis, risk analysis, especially, mm. you don't risk an analyze nothing. No, you well, just become 10-foot tall and bulletproof. Well, like, I guess it would be the equivalent of in, in your day doing stick-ups and just pop a couple of Xanax and go, I'm going to run in this bank and rub it around the belly because I don't give a fuck. Yeah. You're just like, who cares? Yeah. You do. The, the, the general thing is I don't give a fuck. And if you're going through shit or you've got past trauma or you've got anxiety issues or you're not happy within yourself, that thought process being switched off and that carefree attitude is fucking euphoric. Yeah. And then mix it with a lot of people mix Xanax with alcohol because it amplifies the effects. The Xanax amplifies the effects of the yeah. alcohol effects, amplifies the effects of Xanax. And uh, it's fucking dangerous. And yeah. uh, I didn't use Xanax a lot outside. I did, obviously, because yeah. I, from time to time because it was one of the drugs that I was using, that and alcohol, when I committed the most recent effects. But I really got stuck into the Xanax in jail. And so after in 2017, after I came back in after the arson, I was charged with the arson and manslaughter, the, the person that died in that was my best friend, and he died as a result. I was badly burnt trying to save his life. It was a very traumatic experience, mm. and I just didn't want to deal with it. Like I felt a lot of guilt and suffering from post-traumatic stress. Mm. Once I was in jail and there was plenty of Xanax around, I just got stuck into it. Mm. And um, I didn't want to deal with all the shit that was going on in my head, the way that I was feeling, what the problems. I was looking at another like I said, ten to all in my head, it was about fifteen years. I thought I might do. So. I don't want to. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to think about it. So that was when I really got stuck into it. But outside, if you're mixing it with alcohol, even if you're just having it on your own, and I know it's popular with young kids, mm. it is popular with young kids. It's fucking dangerous. Yeah, um, I think the most dangerous drug of all. That and ice. I've I've seen what ice does to people that are close to me. And mm. We're talking about a certain someone before we started recording mm. that I've seen them go downhill. But I, that's a story that I could tell you about a dozen blokes I know. Mm. So I would say definitely stay away from both of them. And yeah. my experience, I, I've never got into the ice. It's something that I've avoided altogether. But the Xanax, I can speak from experience, many, present experience. I've sat in prison yards and seen blokes come in that have been pitched on 10 stick-ups, don't even remember doing them. Yeah. Yeah. Murders that they don't even remember doing. I know a bloke that got on the Xanax and went into the police station and confessed to four murders that he'd been cleared on. <laughs> but that's the thing you thought like I said that thought yeah. process is gone it's not there yeah. and like you said wouldn't remember it yeah but like you said there's a there's a sentence in every bottle and that was true for me I, that bottle that I bought when I committed the most recent offence I only got that the day before and I had two zannies out yeah. of it that was it so the whole the rest of them was yeah. in there there were that bottle definitely like as soon as I got it I didn't know it at the time but it, it was a prison sentence went to happen yeah I seen my son on it and it broke my heart this to see him going through it. Can, let's go backtrack a little bit too. Let's just go back to that, the big trial, because the trial itself was really widespread in the media, wasn't it? Now we're mm. describing you as the sons of anarchy bikies and... Yeah, there was a lot of media around that one. So we had... You had a good legal teams, eh? We had a really good legal team. Initially, I didn't, mm. and I had... Of course, I hadn't been through the whole process before, and I threw money at it and thinking that was the way to solve the problem. And a lot of lawyers, they just... Beautiful. He's going to rob this guy blind and take his money. I ran out of money before I even got the trial, and then my my lawyer Ben Jamison. He's I, I really got to give that guy a lot of credit. He's a really good lawyer and genuinely good bloke. Who 
I'm still friends with. I talk to him regularly. He's represented me on all my stuff. But we were in big trouble and we needed mm. good legal representation. So I don't know, you would have been through it yourself. The coppers for that one, because it was such high media interest and because they were painting us to be the most dangerous group, the most violent group. That's the tag you've got, though. It was the Sons of Anarchy thing. I remember that. Yeah, I, I read there was articles that i seen too. Obviously, you get the paper in jail, so yeah. we read it all. Saying there, this is Sydney's most violent group of men and all that type of stuff. Mm. But that's what the police have a they have a PR department. It's a PR machine, and that's what they want to sell. They want to sway public opinion. They look what we're doing. We need to get these guys off the street, and this is what we're going to do. We had um, Deb Wallace sitting in in our court, mm, head of Raptor. Yeah. yeah, and she's like obviously a notable figure. Everybody knows who she is. She wears bright coloured clothes yeah. and stuff like that and sitting the thing. So it was attracting attention from, she was one of the highest ranking police officers in the state at the time, mm. the head of the gang squad, mm. I think she was mm. at the time. Um, so the media were packed in there. There was news articles that she was doing, you know, like seven, eight page spreads. Mm. The funny thing was that I look at was that there was media in there every day, police in there every day, but the day we got our verdict, there was not one to be seen. Mm. And I thought, how the fuck did they know that if we were getting found guilty, I guarantee you there would have been 40 coppers up the back and the place would have been full of media. Mm. But even when we were... But they must, for not to be there, they must have seen the way that trial was going towards the end before the jury went out. Do you know what? You've been through trials yourself and I'm sure you got to verdicts, that sometimes there's questions. Like our, our, were, the, were the jury coming back with questions, were they? Yeah, that's right. So that deliberation process for us went for six days. Yeah. So that tells me that it was up in the air. It wasn't, mm. definitely wasn't, like if they came back in an hour and said not guilty, then mm. that tells you that there's, that, that they were convincingly swayed beyond any reasonable doubt. The question didn't even need to be asked. The answer mm. was there, not guilty. Mm. So the fact that they deliberated for six days tells me that there was at least some consideration to go the other way. Yeah. So when we got called up for jury questions, they were all there. They were, there, there was plenty of them up the back mm. and the media and that. And anyway, when the They last... would have gauged it off the questions they were asking though. Look, that probably is, but I always, I've always had that question in the back of the mind. Did mm. they have a jury member in there? Did they have... A, like, 100% a, they did. Like at least giving them... Not that they had one like in the pocket mm. or anything. Mm. I don't think that at all, but it's just uh, someone giving them information or a microphone mm. in there. Mm. Look, after you spend that much time in jail and you've been through it and you see the dirty tactics, you certainly wouldn't rule it out. No. Because... They do use dirty tactics. There was witnesses that came to court for that case that said, I didn't write that statement. Mm. They said, I didn't write that at all. The police told me come in and just to sign something and it would all go. It would, they, one of them came in and goes, I didn't write that. Mm. And then that type of stuff just gets dismissed like as, ah, oh, well, we won't worry about it. A couple of questions here. Why do you think the coppers were so dirty on you guys at that stage? I think there was one bloke that was pinched. We won't say his name, mm. but they had it in for him, eh? There was a couple that they really had it yeah. in for. There was a couple and names in there that they really wanted to get, two in particular, but mm. they had just beaten a separate big case, a shooting case, mm. which also received a lot of media attention. We were all charged with multiple charges at mm. the same time. There was other guys in that case who had other mm. kidnapping mm. charges that they were facing. There mm. was guys facing shooting charges. There was guys facing all sorts of drug charges, stuff like that. So having beat and it was only two months before they ran back-to-back trials. So mm. those blokes were in trial for basically six months out of eight or six months out of seven. They were close together. Mm. So there would have been a sour taste in their mouth after having lost that. So they thought, well, we'll get them on this one. We want to make sure we get them on this one. Yeah. And, look, the attention that we were getting was warranted, mm. but not for that case specifically. If you're out there running a muck and you're making noise, you're going to get mm. attention. So we I got what we that, deserve. I love you saying that. I love you saying that. It's mm. fucking that's honest. When I wrote my book, there was one thing I decided that 
if I'm going to do it, you have to be completely open and honest with me. Yeah, you transparent. Can't find, yeah. You have to. So if I'm going to talk about the drug issues that I had, for the violence that mm. I was that I was committing, the the shit that I went through, how I felt about it, my mate passing away, the bad decisions that I made, the impact that has on my family and that type of stuff, you have to be honest about it because people will sniff out bullshit like that. And I just think that I'd, like my motive behind what I'm doing now is to be of benefit to other people. Like I want to make some change. I want to change people's lives. I want to make change within, if I can shine light and draw attention to the shit that goes on in the system and that can have some level of influence to make some change and that's my goal. So I can't be seen to be full of bullshit. If I get caught out on a lie, it's going to take any credibility away that I've got. So I've got no choice the way that I see it to be just to be completely open and honest and transparent. So mm. I'll always call this, mate. If you're trying to solve any issue or solve any problem in your life, you got to be honest with yourself. Yeah. I think yeah, so. that's the first step. You've got to... Honest and authentic, I think. And you're right. I work with kids. I work with troubled kids. I go to schools and that sort of thing. And them kids will fucking... Mate, and you've got to be transparent with them because mm. the things you're not talking about, they're the things they want to know. Mm. And that's what that's where the gold is for them kids, the things mm. that you feel a bit uncomfortable talking about. But I think that's where the connection is. Yeah. Because if you want to get on a level with them where they're going to respect you and listen to what you've got to say, you've got to connect with them and mm. you've got to be... You've got to talk openly and honestly and call a spade and people will respect that. It doesn't matter if they're fucking 12 years old or 82 years old. Yeah. Um, people will connect with you when you're open and honest and you're sharing, I guess it's, it would be like the intimate details of your life and how you feel and the, they, they can see that you're genuine and wanting to help them because I think if people feel, like I said earlier, that they've got someone on their team, someone on their side, oh, mm. I've walked in your shoes, I'm with you. Like, yeah. I've been through this. I've... That's important. Mm. And and that's why I think what getting lost, I'm seeing one of my biggest oppositions to go and work with kids in Alice Springs is the police. They don't want mm. me out there. They don't want us out there, want us have to be blue carded up. They put us in positions where they know we can't do it. Like it's very hard to get a blue card. I'll eventually get one because I'm going to get knocked back for it and I'm going to take them to court and win it on judicial review on the Supreme Court, Civil Administration's Tribunal. That's where I'll get it. I'll get it directly from them to, to get it. But they'll do everything to slow the process down. Look, people say to me, I say, I'm not dirty on cops. I'm not dirty. They've got a hard job to do. I'm just fucking... I, I'm dirty on the ones that are self-serving and they're more worried about their job than getting results with those kids. Look, there's good and bad in everything. Yeah. I'm the same. I take the same view as you. I don't hate cops in general. Mm. I've had bad experiences with police and have issues with the individual. Mm. But as a whole, I think, look, you've got some that are there to gen genuinely that want to do the right thing and do a good job and there's other people that are self-serving, like you said. Mm. They want to make the big arrests and promote themselves up the ladder and all that type of stuff. You get anyone anywhere that's self-serving and self-promoting, they're not going to do a good job of anything. And I think that especially if your motive is good, like your motive is to go and help kids. That's if mm. you can, they can, might not like your past or your character or what you're doing or what you say, but if your motive is good and you're there to make a genuine effort to help out, then you would hope that they'd want to support that. They so. would. Look, at. have you had a chance to see the 1-4 documentary on Netflix? I watched about oh, probably 70%, 80% of it the other night. Crazy. That's the coppers being out of tune. Like, we're from that area. Mm. And you can say these kids, I, I just, I think that was really bad PR, especially for Raptor, extremely bad PR for Raptor. Do you know what? I think that, not for them, obviously, it's mm. not good, but I think it gives people the opportunity to see things from a different perspective. Mm. 
And that's one of my main goals. Mm. Is, I will consider your perspective, even if your perspective is that I don't deserve a second chance and you're dead against me. But mm. if I can take your perspective on board, maybe you can take mine on board. Mm. I think that gives people a opportunity to see things that I think the, the general person would think that oh, the police, they've got a tough job and they, I'm not saying that it's easy, but you can say that in certain circumstances, they go there, what they do doesn't help. If anything, it's them self-serving. They want to go in and attack someone and bring them down in a certain way. And I don't mean physically attack them to break them down or stop them from succeeding or stop what they're doing, which is self-serving for them. Those boys are just guys that, yeah, they come from troubled backgrounds and they've had some problems with the law, but most of the problems they have by the law is from the attention, the negative attention that they've Hmm. got and the pressure that the police are putting on them. They've been labelled as you are perpetuating violence in the streets of Western Sydney. Hmm. They're artists. They're Hmm. singing about, it's a controversial issue, that gang violence, but they are artists that's singing about what's going on in their area. Mm. And they have a connection to their area. That's who they are. That's where they're from. Mm. They're proud of who they are and where they're from. And they're singing about what's going on. That's their lives. They grew up in amongst yeah. it. So they're just giving... No different than what Paul Kelly would have sung about, what he sang about, what he grew up differently. If Are you going to criticise... Would you criticise someone for singing a song about domestic violence if they grew up in a household of domestic violence, mm. say, for instance? Or if they were singing a song about their issues with drug use or something like that's what they grew up in. If they were singing about my area and having lots of drugs and alcohol and there was these type of problems, they're singing about what's going on in their area, in their lives. Mm. I don't think that you can blame them for perpetuating violence that existed well before they ever sang a fucking song. Mm. Like Most areas have that little rivalry growing in high school, those fucking, Mm. those kids from that high school, we've got issues with them. You see each other at the park, you have a crack. That type of shit goes on everywhere. Bob Marley shot the sheriff. Didn't mean there was a big fucking string of sheriffs getting shot. Exactly. But I think it's mm. police need to justify what they do. What they do costs money. They need to prop up budgets. And think about how much money you spent on those units, those gang units. And mm. you've said it yourself. Who, kids that are abused, as sexually abused as mm. kids, why is that money that's been spent on violence and bikies and mm. fucking all the shit that they generate big fucking income, or sorry, big big budgets to fight. Why is that same money not being spent on those areas? Yeah, I agree. Uh, because it's not popular. But how many police are saying, I want to join Raptor, I want to join these high-profile units? That's self-serving. It's what they want. They want to be in amongst the action. Mm. No different than bikies, really, in some ways. Yeah. I look at them blokes like that. They want to be part of a gang. Mm. They want to yeah, be a gang. Belong and, to something, yeah. have some purpose. Yeah. That's fine. But they do the same thing that certain bikies do. They go around terrorising people. Oh, they do. They absolutely terrorise. I know guys that just get get pulled out of bed and just beat the shit out of them and say, just so you know, we're watching, we're around. Mm. Tell me how that's not doing the same thing that you're trying to stop. Like you're fucking committing acts of violence and intimidating people, which is the very thing that you say that this is why we need to shut these fucking bikies or whoever down. But the point I'm trying to make is that how many of them are lining up saying, I want to join the sex crime squad and I want to really help people who need it and bring to before the courts are people who really need to be before the courts, the pedophiles and the predators because... There's some stats in Queensland. Task Force Maximus, the bikey squad, the equivalent mm-hmm. to the Raptor, it's got 120 coppers in it. Task Force Argos is the sex of six crime squad. It's got like 14. They put more of an onus on, on, on that. It's crazy. And then what about the sentences that get handed down for guys that commit those type of crimes? Crazy. I shouldn't say just guys, but it's pre- predominantly guys that commit those offences. But... <laughs> I got extra time in 2017 for attacking a sex offender in jail and I'd done an extra... Most of it got done concurrent 
And mm. I thought, you know what, I'm probably going to serve more time for beating this bloke up than the guys that fucking actually committed the yeah. offence. Some of the sentences you hear get handed down. You think, how That's is crazy. It? It's out of disproportionate. But when you get sentences, right, you hear these sentences and they go, we want to give you a sentence to deter you from re- future reoffending. I, I got one of them at, at 16 years. I got sent to an adult prison at 16 years old, so I got a 12-month sentence to deter me from re- future reoffending. What sort of sentence is appropriate for one of them to deter them from and sending a message to the public that will not be tolerated? The thing is, this is my view of it, and I don't know if people will agree with me or not, but I think there's that crime is those type of crimes against kids. I'm talking about against kids here. If you introduce a law tomorrow that tells me that it is now illegal for you to have sex with women, I'm sexually attracted to women, Mm. there's no amount of jail time that you can give me that's ever going to make me not attracted Mm. to women. Somebody who's a pedophile that's attracted to children, doesn't matter what type of jail time you give, there's... That is their sexual preference and that's what they're going to do. And you give them fucking 20 years jail and they're still going to get mm. out and do the same thing. Chemically castrate them. Mm. Like I know that people will say, well, that's a fucking extreme view, but what if it was your child who was one of the mm. – uh, that was attacked in that way? There's, it's a very unique crime because if you have a propensity for violence, if you sell drugs, if you st- do stick-ups, they're all things that you can effectively get to the core – of and resolve. You can rehabilitate that person. I think so. If you're a pedophile, you cannot be rehabilitated. This is my view. Oh, you can't, I, don't, I don't think that you can. You can't, so. you can't put them down at Long Bay at a course called Cubit, put them through 12 months of that, and it'll change their sexual preference. A lesbian likes women. A gay guy likes guys. Heterosexual like they, men and women. But theirs is children. It doesn't change. You cannot do any course to change someone's sexual preference. You can't. So... I think the only way to solve that problem is to chemically castrate them. Yeah, so I'm with you. Just cut their balls off with a spoon. Blunt one. I'll, mm. I'll, I'll, <laughs> got, I'll do it. Got a butter knife at home that will sort it out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move along. But I'll just, I make, just, yeah. So what are you up to now, mate? Tell me what, what you're up to now. You got a book out? Have you brought a book here so we can have a look? I did. It's out there, but I bought you a copy. <laughs> I wrote that book while I was in prison. It's a book. It's called Prison Poetry. Mm. I started writing the poetry just as an outlet for myself. There was never any intention to write a book or publish poems or do anything like that. The, and once I started, I just wrote a couple of poems and I couldn't stop. And I, it was just thoughts that had been bouncing around my head. And by that point, I had started to develop some of the my philosophies around, we talked about recidivism, but other things like adversity and hardship, things you go through. Some of the poems that I wrote were just about Jail training, there's one called Jail Fit, and it's just talking about the fitness culture in jail and mm. what you get out of it and the benefits that I can get from it and stuff like that. And before you knew it, I had about 30 poems, and there was just so much behind them. Mm. Like I would talk about adversity and the way that you view adversity and the benefits it can have if you view it through a positive lens, and I thought... I felt like eight or nine verses of a poem, like there was so much behind it I wanted to try and explain it a bit. Mm. And I started writing and I just had the idea for a book and from day dot I thought I really feel like that I can, if I were to publish a book, that what I have to say could be of benefit to other people. So that was my... That should be going, that book should be going in the youth detention centres. Yeah, I'd, and if they'll take them, I'd love to give them. Mm. But so over a couple of years... Of writing the poems and the, I got a book together I'd, and um, by the time I got out, I'd mostly had it done. There was a few things to touch up and tidy up. So since getting out, that was my as a goal that I had set for myself mm. was to publish a book. Um, so I got the book published. Um, 
I went up to Brisbane not too long ago, recorded the audio book and, um, yeah, so now that's step one. Like I wanted to get the book out there because I really feel like that it's got the it's got the potential to be of benefit to other people. That's one of the main reasons that I wanted to write the book. And it's not it's a I write a poem and then there'll be several pages just explaining the poem and that's the book. But next, like I'd I'd love to do what you're doing. I'd love to do a podcast. I'd love to go into the kids' jails and talk to people and use my experiences for positive things. It's just about casting a wide net and helping as many people as I can through my own experiences. I really feel like that what I went through, the process I went through, the self-development and growth that I got out of once I decided to turn things around. you've dug deep. You're a very intelligent guy. You've dug deep and you articulate so well. You know, what? One, one of the greatest things that I discovered in jail was a love for reading. And some of the most intelligent people that I have met and have really interesting conversations with, they're voracious readers. Mm. They read a lot. There was one cellie that I had in particular at the start of my jail sentence. This Canadian guy was in on an import charge. And this guy would just read for hours, like 12 hours a day. And I was like, what the fuck? He would start reading one book for four or five hours and put it down and start reading another one. Mm. But he was a very intelligent guy and I could talk to him about anything and he would just have something to add, something Mm. to contribute and something of value. And every time I was cellies with him for a couple of months and I just feel like just being around this guy, I thought, fuck, I feel like I'm smarter and better for having talked to this guy. Mm. And he... It was all just because he read. He just said, mate, you're going to be in here for a long time. Fucking reading will change your life. So when I just, and I read a little bit, but this most recent time, one of the ways that when I said I reached out for help and I got none Mm. and I decided that I was going to have to sort things out for myself, I thought I'm going to read. Mm. I'll read anything and get my hands on. If I can read a book on philosophy, if I can read a book on psychology, if I can read autobiographies of interesting people, some of them were, I read one, Scar Tissue. Love it. Great book. Yeah. I read that book four times. It's a great book. And Michael out of Red Hot Chili Pebbles. Yeah, fucking forget him. Yeah. <laughs> you think I should be yeah, to recall yeah. his name since yeah. I'm talking about his yeah. book? Uh, but anyway, it's a great book and that resonated with me. But then I might read, I read, oh, what's the fucking book name of the book? Whenever I'm trying to recall things, one thing I've got a shocking memory. So Whenever I'm trying to recall something, it will come to me 10 minutes. Uh, Phil Knight, it's called mm. Shoe Dog. And uh, it's about he's the founder of Nike. Mm. Uh, just a really interesting story. And but one of the things I took from that book was that he started from absolutely nothing. He started selling shoes out of his boot of his car mm. at running meets, mm. and he just doubled down. Every time he got money, he made a bit of profit. He just put it back into the business, and he just went again and again. And I just thought this guy just got where he got and built one of the biggest companies mm. in the world through sheer persistence and mm. just keeping going. And the banks didn't want to lend him money. They're saying, mate, you can't just keep on putting all your profits back into the business. Mm. And he didn't listen to him and he done things his way. And it was just uh, that resonated with me. But mm. I read hundreds of books. Mm. And anyway, so I st- one of the ways that I started to work on myself was reading other people's stories and mm. But not just other people's stories. I'm not all that religious a person, but I read the Bible. I read Mm. books on Buddhism and I just thought if there's information out there that can help me, I want to fucking know about it. I also talk to people. I talk to people that had issues with drugs and had bad childhoods and the type of backgrounds and stuff you help people with. And Mm. if they were willing to open up and tell me their stories, I'd listen to what they have to say. If you just listen to people, you'd be surprised what you learn. Mm, I agree. Um, I was at John Maroney one when it used to be minimum security and I got to the jail and there was this unit, all these white collared stiffs and I said, that's where I want to live. And all my mates are going, you're not living in there, you're not living in there. I said, I know every single story you've got to tell, I'll learn off from there. And I made my way into this unit 
and they were businessmen that had been pinched for fraud and shit mm. like that. I was always going to learn, and I say that was the start of my business acumen. Be surprised the people that you meet in jail. Like, mm. I guess the average perception is that everyone's just a bunch of scumbags, low-educated and fucking junkies mm. or whatever people's view is. But you do come across some very interesting people in there, people mm. from all walks of life. I met guys in there for fraud that had done $100 million frauds and stuff mm. like that. I met one guy who he was a... He wrote prospectuses mm. for, so obviously his background mm. was law. Yeah. Very wealthy man, very smart man. And like you said, his business acumen. If you can just take small pockets of knowledge mm. from these people. And I've done the same thing, just talk to people. It doesn't matter what walk of life you're from, I just wanted to have a chat with you. If people would um, open up and have a chat with me, I'd listen to what they have to say. And uh, I'd read some books around investing and stuff like that. But uh, I learned more from guys like him and mm. talking to guys like that, like what they do and how they move their money around and all that type of stuff. And very interesting. It's, I've seen some now, like I've got a couple of mates, a bloke called Low Key, he's a music producer for A. Huncho, Hooligan Haves, Young and Lips. He started off just mowing lawns, mm. then barbershops, then music producer and then nightclub. And I, I had lunch with him the other day and it's just, man, I could just hang off every word this bloke mm. says. I think there's, like, you can do a uni course in business, mm. but you'd probably learn just as much for someone who's just, if you're the guy that's gone through it and made all the mistakes, you're going to learn more than anybody who's done the business yeah. course. There's nothing teachers like experience, is there? Yeah. But if you can, if you've got somebody like that's willing to give you their time and share their knowledge, you just shut mm. the fuck up and listen to what yeah, they've got to say and it'll take you a long way in life. Yeah, and I love the fact that he rings me and bounces problems off me now. He goes, Russ, I've got this, what do you think about that? Because <clears throat> I like strategy. Business strategy is one of my favourite things, to, to plan, look ahead of where it can go and how you're mm. going to get there. But I also like getting off my ass and doing it. I don't mm. like fucking thinking about it too much. Mm. My girl's a barrister. <laughs> Barristers like to procrastinate. They mm. like to fucking make sure the puzzle's getting fucking glued together. And mm. I just say, fucking, sometimes you just got to take a chance. Sometimes mm. you just got to back your ability to fucking get it done. That's what we're good at from the western mm. suburbs. Do you know where I think that comes from too? Is coming, like you said, western suburbs, but you go through what we went through with the jail and stuff, and you realise that fucking the thought of losing money, like, I think that's one of people's biggest fears that try or don't try to do something for themselves in business, mm. to take a chance. Yeah. It's the fear of losing stuff. And once you've lost everything a few times and once you come from nothing, that fear erodes a little bit and you're yeah, like, fuck it, what am I going to do? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'll go back or fucking go back working on a building site. So yeah. Who cares? Fuck, I'll be fine. Mm. I've had nothing most of my life and I'll have a chance and the reward aspect, if that fucking pays off, then it's happy days. Mm. And uh, if it doesn't, so what? I can yeah. fucking survive on nothing. I've had nothing most of my life. Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? That's that. I love that about. Like, I met a guy. I met a guy a few months ago from Sinclair. And, um, he went to the army, and they kicked him out because he he done an aptitude test, and he was too smart. Mm. They said you got to go and fucking you you got to go and do something like mm. with uni and that sort of stuff. And he now he's a financial advisor to fucking some of the richest people in the world. Mm. He's right. And he's from Saint Clair. He's from Saint Clair. <laughs> I want to touch on this one point. And it goes to the Penrith Panthers Rugby League team. They won their first grand final in 1991 and it showed that people in that area that they can be winners. Mm. I think it was massive for that area. I'm a big Panther supporter. Yeah. I've lived there my whole life. Yeah. We had, obviously, from oh, 2003, we won the next grand final mm. and it was 2020 before we won the next one. So mm. there's like a long period. The people out west are just, they're salt-of-the-earth type mm. people. They really are. And I know that, you know, Penrith might get a bad rap from people in more affluent suburbs, mm. but there is genuinely good people out there. But we're battlers. 
people don't always have a lot, but they're good people. But something like that happening in the area, what those Panthers players, that team, the club has done for the area, it it lifts people up. Um, I think what they've done is amazing. And it, But you know what? They didn't get there by chance. They got mm. there through fucking hard work and belief. And the boys in that team like, really got to give them credit for what mm. they do. And the club. I'll give that club that, in particular, Phil Gold gets a bad rap, but he created that structure in there for them boys to display their talent. And look at every other club now opening centres of excellence and mm. doing what he done. But it was off the back of 10 years of fucking hard. They had to lay the foundation mm. for that success. I and just love the fact that people got belief out of that. The day after the grand final, kids are kicking footballs around. But mm. not only that, Taito Avasa, Tyson Pedro, mm. the rap scene, people are winning out there now. Why oh, is another, another guy who really reps the area. Like, he's on a world stage and he still reps Kingswood, Penrith, mm. Western mm. Sydney, and people love him out there. He's, mm. he's out there. He, he, he loves where he's from. He loves his heritage. He talks about, like, his nationality. He talks about his area where he's from, and he loves it. And, mm. he, and he doesn't – it's not like he, he's let success – because he has enjoyed a great deal of success and he's still just tired. There's a, a lot yeah. of good people come from those areas. And do you know what I honestly think is I think it's people that come from humble beginnings, come from, I guess, low socioeconomic backgrounds. There's, they've got drive because yeah. they want to succeed. They've got something there that you can't get if you've had it all too easy. Sometimes there's real value in like not having a great start in life because you know what I want to get out of here. I've got to fucking work hard. And it's yeah, and you gotta work, when you're from there, you've got to work t- twice as hard. But I think that you might have to work twice as hard, but it's going to be twice as beneficial for yeah. you in the long run. And that is mm. one of the things I really nailed down on. It's like you can turn hardship and what you think are your, something that's a disadvantage into your greatest advantage. It's just mm. how you view things. I love I love, it. I love sitting in boardrooms with. I went. I go into a boardroom with with a law firm with my young bloke. I'm in there in a Hugo Boss tracksuit, and they're all in there and they're fucking mad. And my son's kicking me. He goes, Dad, do you feel under the place? I said, No. Nah. I said, Man, I got the gold mine. These blokes want the gold. And mm. I, I know where my place is on this table. And I said, I'm sitting above them. I said, because they've got what I want. They've got what they want. I love it. I love being from Mount Dry. I'm a proud fucking Westie. You know what I mean? And talk about where you're going to now, mate. Let's go. Let's. Where are you off to? The next thing is the podcast. I really want to do that. I just feel like that if I can cast, like I said, cast a wide net, get out, get uh, my messaging out to as many people as I can. I want to have interesting conversations with interesting people. I want to talk I about people it. who have enjoyed great success. I want to talk about people who have come from hardship and adversity and succeeded. I want to talk about talk to people who have overcome the type of things that I've overcome and have that be of benefit to whoever listens to it. I want to go into the kids' jails specifically. I really want to do that. Yeah. I applied for my working with children as soon as I got out of jail and then they said, just because you severity of your charges and stuff like that, you're going to have to wait a little while. Mm. Which I thought, okay, it's a setback, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. I, it's, I just want to... I want to use what I've... Use my experiences for good. I think that there is some aspect of sort of redemption in there too. Like I don't think that there was a long time where I wasn't happy. I was partying a lot and I was just feel avoid. And, and like after a lot of reflection, I thought it's because you're not being true to yourself. You're not living the life. You're not. There's no purpose in your life. There's the word purpose. It's funny that you say that because the book that I brought for you and I, I wrote a message in it, it was about purpose and I said, I'm happy that you found yours because I think it's easy for people to lose their way and it doesn't matter where you are, how far you walk from the path, once you find your purpose and you can get back on path, like anybody can do it, it doesn't matter your background or what your issues are, you find purpose and meaning in your life, there's nothing you won't achieve. As long as you stay dedicated and you keep on going, you keep showing up, you can do anything you want to do. Purpose is... 
There's a quote I wrote in there from Robert Byrne that says the purpose of life is a life of purpose. I really, truly believe that. I believe it too. I think the, the purpose was the light that took me out of the darkness. Mm. But I think that's my purpose. I think that I can use my experiences and I what I've so learned. I think so too. I think you'd be a, an amazing asset. On that note, Scott Kieran, thanks for being on the stick-up, brother. Thanks for having me. <laughs>